This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for December 9th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. And we're also joined today by Dr. Joshua Barocas. Josh is an infectious disease physician at Boston Medical Center, whose research and practice center on populations that are infected with chronic viral infections, such as HIV, hepatitis C, and who at the same time are coping with issues such as substance use and homelessness. So Josh's work involves some serious thought about how to engage these people who are often not plugged into the healthcare system. So this is a very eventful time. We're waiting this week for the FDA review of one COVID-19 vaccine and another next week. And it looks as if vaccines could start to be administered as early as next week. It'll be great to have the problem of how to give the vaccine, but that is still a problem. Vaccines are likely to be in short supply for at least several months, and they'll have to be rationed. There are also other logistic challenges, particularly as the first vaccine candidates require freezing, one of them at ultra-low temperatures. And we have to think about how to reach populations who are difficult to engage or who are reluctant to be vaccinated, both the populations that Josh has been looking at and people who are leery of vaccines altogether. But before we get there, let's discuss a study that we published last week addressing another issue with vaccines, the persistence of the immune response after vaccination. What did we learn there? Steve, the study we published last week looked at one of two vaccines that are about to undergo review of their phase three data by the FDA. Both of these are messenger RNA-based vaccines. This one is called mRNA-1273, and it's produced by Moderna. Oftentimes, these vaccines are associated with the companies that manufacture them. They looked at 34 participants who received two doses of the vaccine at four-week intervals, and these were very early data so that they were able to follow these participants for a long time. These recipients received the 100-microgram dose, which is the same dose that they ended up choosing for the phase three trial, whose data we'll hear about next week from the FDA. They compared antibody titers in these patients on three different occasions after the second dose going all the way out to 90 days. The results are very qualitative. Well, I mean, they're quantitative. They measured antibody levels, but we don't know what those mean. It's certainly true that in multiple assays, all the recipients still had detectable antibodies, although their levels were somewhat lower than they were at their peak. All had detectable neutralizing antibodies, which might be important as they might represent part of what's important in protection. Of course, there are two critical caveats, one of which I referred to already. First, notice that I said these might represent protection, but we don't know for certain what a protective level of antibody is. Um, and in fact, we don't even know if antibody is the important component of the immune response. It's possible that T cell responses are quantitatively more important. But despite this, I think this information is somewhat reassuring. Antibody titers fall after any vaccine or any infection for that matter, but individuals can often be protected even with low titers of antibody because when they become infected, there's a rapid boosting of the immune response. So I don't know how much we learn from this, except that antibodies do persist and that it's likely that at least over the course of a few months, there's some persistent protection. Eric, I think it's important to carefully look at the data we do have here. It's important to have some data, but 
some data are not definitive, as you note, and having 15 people per group is very intriguing, probably as correct as to what the titers look like over three months, but three months may not be nearly enough. We probably need three years. And so even though these data are very encouraging, they are small and temporally limited. And we're gonna have to follow through time. And as you point out, protection may be quantitative, the presence of antibody, or the antibody may mark immune priming and therefore, as you suggested, the amnestic response. And so people may be protected or have some degree of protection, even if the title falls below a quantitative threshold. It just speaks to how much more we need to learn about the immune response and the protective immune response and how we need to do that quickly given the speed of the pandemic and how much data we can generate given the temporal kinetics or the temporal reality. Those are good points, Lindsay. I'd add that the current trials that are underway and the trials that have already been completed, the phase two trials, really aren't going to show us what protection looks like. They weren't designed to do that. So it's going to take a while till we have an idea of what the correlates of immunity are, how much antibodies required, whether or not T cells are contributing. And I think we're only going to learn that probably given the state of knowledge right now and the rapid advancements into the clinic, we're probably only going to learn that as we start to use these vaccines uh, rather than from these large randomized clinical trials. So arguably, before we worry about how long the vaccine is going to last, we have to manufacture it and get it to people. According to news reports, as it stands right now, if both of these mRNA vaccines are approved, there'll only be a limited number of doses available, and that shortage is going to last for at least several months in the United States. The CDC and the ACIP have produced broad recommendations about who should be first in line to receive these vaccines. What's the logic behind their guidelines? There are a few priorities that have gone into the thinking of people who are trying to set these guidelines up. And they are who's at highest risk of exposure, who is most likely to spread disease, and who's at the highest risk of serious illness and death. The first two categories are fairly similar because people who have many contacts are the most likely to be infected, and they're also generally the most likely to spread infection. So those two groups, to some extent, can be grouped. So the people who fall into that group are a wide variety of people because of their circumstances, either because of their jobs or their living situation. Most guidelines put healthcare workers at the front of the line for receiving vaccines, and there's certainly a logic behind this, though I'd also point out that it's interesting that the rules that are being drafted are generally by healthcare workers who are also at the top of the list. Uh, but there are a number of other groups that are exposed to the virus more frequently, including any number of essential workers. And then there are all of those who live at close quarters. That's including soldiers, prisoners, and residents of shelters. We know of outbreaks that have occurred in all of these settings. One other group at high exposure is also at high risk, the nursing home residents. We've seen several tragic examples of outbreaks in nursing homes with both high attack rates and high death rates. So putting them near the top of the list is an easy call. And there are many others with risk factors that put them at increased risk of serious illness or death should they acquire infection. And those include the elderly and individuals with several comorbidities. So we're already talking about a very large group that we're putting at the head of the line much larger group, in fact, than we're likely to have vaccines for. So how to actually set the priorities among all of these groups 
as new batches of vaccine comes out, is far from a settled issue. Right now, the CDC sets broad guidelines in the U.S., but again, in the U.S., it's the states that have to make all the decisions. Eric, one of the things that I would add is that there are a number of, I think, ethical frameworks that have been proposed and put out there for us to think about these things. As you said, healthcare workers are at the top of the line, and part of that has to do with the idea of promoting the common good. If we can protect healthcare workers, then we promote public health, and in fact, we can, in, to some degree, promote sort of economic and social well-being. I'm referencing some of the ethical guidelines that were put out by the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health Center for Health Security. And the other parts that I really think are important about this framework, when we think about who gets the vaccine first, have to do not just with promoting the common good, but also treating people fairly and promoting equity and promoting legitimacy, trust, and sort of a sense of ownership in this pluralistic society. So I think that some of the guidelines, um, you'd mentioned prisoners as one of those groups that are being considered for early vaccination, but then the folks at the front of the line or more toward the front end up being people in nursing homes and the elderly. And part of that has to do with comorbidities and age. But I'll point out that if we were to, for instance, look at the incarcerated population with this ethical framework, there have been more than 200,000 infections in the criminal legal system and more than 1,500 people who are incarcerated or who are corrections officers have actually died of the virus. And this spills over into society. Right. So there was a study that was published not too long ago that showed that about 16% of COVID cases in a Chicago outbreak were traced to a node of infections in the Cook County jails. So I think when we're thinking about vaccine allocation, bringing in more than just the public health good, but also these issues of equity and fairness are really important, especially when we think that. There are 500,000 people who are presumed innocent awaiting trial in our criminal legal system right now. That's a lot of people who may actually, quote, deserve the vaccine early. Josh, it's a very good point. And I'd add that the discussion of the ethical framework has really driven all of the guidelines around the allocation of care earlier on in the outbreak when we were worrying about having to ration ICU beds and ventilators, and really ethics were predominant. And I am struck by the fact that they have not risen to the top of the consideration pile when it's come to vaccination. I am too, although I'm not terribly surprised. And part of this has to do with how we think about people in our society and the overwhelming amount of stigma that exists. You know, stigma is something that we've talked about through almost every epidemic, every disease process. We talk about it quite often in people with substance use disorders, and certainly it persists and is probably one of the most predominant factors in how we've actually thought about the allocation 
of vaccines in quote high risk people who live in high risk settings. I have to believe that based on the pervasiveness of stigma against prisoners, against people who are experiencing homelessness and people who are in other congregate settings, the pervasiveness of stigma might actually come into how we are allocating these vaccines, unfortunately. I mean, I think that how to allocate is immensely complex as we've sort of been raising the different issues. And I think justice, equity, trust are all critical frameworks to think about the allocation process. As we think about that, we must protect the most vulnerable and we must also protect our healthcare systems from collapsing and minimize the mortality. And it's a very difficult job to sort out the allocation framework given the tremendous complexity of these different arenas. And I think that prioritizing those who are most likely to die does seem to have some resonance. And prioritizing those we need to keep our healthcare systems open, I also think is very important. And so then how do we balance the competing goods of getting our society open maintaining a healthcare system that's viable while protecting the most vulnerable. And the most vulnerable are in many different quarters of our society. And that requires vigorous debate as is going on to find the right balance. Of course, that balance is going to be related to how much vaccine is available over what time period and the delivery systems in place. Because at least from my perspective, the sooner we increase the immunologic barriers in our community, the sooner we decrease the number of individuals amplifying and spreading virus. And how do we figure out how to do that throughout the different sectors of our society? And we have to think about that broadly, as you suggest, Josh, to make sure that we are penetrating those communities that are rapidly amplifying virus and suffering morbidity, because this is a communicable infection. So the more we have individuals ill, the more virus is being spread and the bigger the problem across all domains. So looking at that system that you're talking about from another angle, a vaccine only works if it's administered, obviously, and administered correctly. There are still substantial logistic challenges with actually getting these vaccines into people's arms. What do those look like? Well, there are many issues in the manufacturing and distribution process. One of those for the current vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, is the need for freezer storage that you mentioned earlier, Steve. But I'd like to focus on two issues within them. First is we know that there are a large number of people who are skeptical about vaccination and at least at this point are not inclined to get vaccinated. But there are also many people who aren't engaged in healthcare at all. How do we bring those people in? And something that's not been discussed as frequently is the administration schedule. These vaccines have to be given in two doses and the spacing of those doses, we don't know how important that is, but how do we get people to come in and get vaccinated and then come back in at the right time interval? And how do we know? And we live in a mobile society where people move around How do we find out that people received their first dose or didn't receive their first dose? It's really tough, especially for those people who don't have regular contact with the healthcare system. 
it's striking that in the UK where vaccination has already started, there's the National Health Service and there's a unified method of bringing care to people and a universal health record system. So that system has made it easy for them to tell whether or not people are being vaccinated, tell whether or not they're missing doses, and perhaps even reach out to people to try to re-engage them. However, in the U.S., this is tough, and it's particularly tough in certain communities. Those include rural areas, which are very spread out, when there's a very low density of providers. But it's not just there. I know, Josh, you work with vulnerable populations in the middle of the city. What kind of hurdles do you think that will have to be overcome in order to deliver vaccines to these folks? Yeah, I am reminded of a statement that David Paltiel has said numerous times, is that that vaccine doesn't mean buckus unless it's in your arm. Uh, so I'm, I'm a simple person. Uh, I think of things in analogies. So I want to put this out there as an analogy of a tree, and in particular, an analogy of digging up a tree. So if you've ever dug up a tree, removed a tree, you know that there's a lot of planning that goes into the process. So first and foremost, you have to have a path that's cleared to get to the tree. Because if you can't get there, how are you gonna get it up in the first place? Second, you have to have the right tools for the job. For each tree, there's a sort of set of necessary tools, something to haul in the equipment, something to cut it shorter, something to dig it up, something to haul it out. And so you need to make sure that you have all of those tools before you start the job. Even still, there are different sizes of jobs that require different resources and different powered tools because not all trees are the same. And finally, no matter how well you think you know that tree, there's a root system underneath that you have to contend with. And sometimes those roots are so deep that you need to come back with a new set of tools. There are other times that those roots are so deep and so complicated that maybe you're not the right person for the job. Maybe you need to reassess the size of your team, the team that is going in to, to try to pull that tree up. There are a lot of different angles that you have to take. So I know that this analogy doesn't even cut it and there was no pun intended there, um, but it's a way that I've started thinking about this in our community. So first, we need a way into the community. Eric, you said, how do we get people to come in for vaccines? My way of thinking about this is, how do we get to them? We need vaccines that are delivered to the places where people are. So if we think about specifics, people with opioid use disorder, for instance, can we get those vaccines at methadone clinics where people show up on a daily basis or at their office-based treatment? Can we go to AA and NA meetings for populations experiencing homelessness? Can we go to the shelters, to the encampments? We need to go to the jails and the prisons, to the schools. We can't expect, just like we would never expect the tree to come to us, we have to go to the populations. Second, we have to think about the tools that we need, some of which you mentioned are universal. We need freezers and whatnot. But we have to figure out what the additional resources we need, because not all vulnerable populations are homogenous. And I actually think that this is a way that we can be really creative, especially since, as you also mentioned, people need two doses. We need to be willing to put forth some resources as a society because of that greater good issue here. People who are experiencing homelessness 
can we get hotel rooms for people to stay in while they wait for the second dose? Methadone clinics, I mentioned, really good places. People show up every day. Do we need to incentivize people, not coerce them, but incentivize vaccines? Do we need to give people phones and chargers and other resources? And finally, I think even if we have the right messages, even if we have the right tools and we're all ready to go, there's a lot of deeply rooted mistrust in many of our vulnerable communities. We've heard a lot recently about the Tuskegee experiments on Black Americans. You know, people with substance use disorders experiencing homelessness, untreated mental health, people who are incarcerated. These groups have very little reason to trust me, to trust us as a healthcare system. And Dr. Kamara Jones has said on numerous occasions, which really resonates with me, we have to be careful not to try to convince people. We need to listen, provide information, address concerns. And I think at the end of the day, we have to realize that we, me, I, you, might not be the right person for the team. And we need different teams of people going in. And sometimes even that's not enough. So that's the sort of framework that I've been thinking about. I mean, Josh, I think you raise many important points. I mean, the concept is how do we get vaccine to those who need it and those who need it most? And how much of that is they come to us or we go to them? And you've pointed out the complexities of the system for those who are disenfranchised or less well-connected in society, and they're just as important as I or you in terms of the risk of COVID and the consequences of COVID, both for us as individuals and for our communities. And I think this speaks to also our seniors, those who have limited mobility and may not be able to leave their housing. And we need to think about how do we engage those who are at risk and most in need of the protections that this type of countermeasure can afford. And not only is it good for them, it's good for all of us, because I hope, and this is a theme we've been talking about for almost a year now with this pandemic, we really are all connected. These infectious diseases that are highly transmissible are a threat and a health concern for all of us and if we don't take care of all of us, then the risks go up across all our communities as we are watching currently with the numbers skyrocketing. So we have to have the right kind of infrastructure and framework. And as you point out, things like language, culture, trust, things that enable others to trust the healthcare system to be doing good needs to understand all those different issues to be successful. Josh, let me follow up on something that sounds trivial, which is the record-keeping part of it. But the record-keeping part of it is actually representative of a broader healthcare problem for people who aren't being seen at an institution or not consistently engaged with one or a set of providers. How do we know what's going on with them? When they show up with illnesses, how do we know what happened to them in the past? So as you think about delivering care at places where people are, how do you deal with what is their past medical history? How do you think about their comorbidities? And of course, the very focused problem of, did they receive one vaccine dose already? Yeah, Eric, that is a really good question. And it actually goes to 
a really very deeply concerning problem. And that is, despite the fact that our infectious diseases are interconnected, it shows the interconnectedness of all of us. Our healthcare record keeping system is not necessarily designed to understand the interconnectedness of all of us and that people are mobile and that people do come in and out of care. Um, so this in particular, because as much as I think the three of us would love to solve all of the world's problems in this particular podcast, we're talking about vaccines. We could actually use our experience, the innovative experiences of how we're getting vaccines to people as a blueprint for how we could actually change our healthcare system. So let's take, for instance, people who are experiencing homelessness. There are a lot of factors in trying to get this population, which is not homogenous in and of itself, two doses of vaccine. Aside from the freezing and all of those logistical barriers, we have to find people who don't have stable housing twice, 21 to 28 days apart. We need to also have a record keeping system such that we know that person X got both vaccines. Part of this comes from, okay, well, we need to think about what are the resources that are actually needed by this person, by us to get them those two vaccines. They need a phone. We need some sort of healthcare app mobile technology to be able to document that they got the first dose. We need a way of following and following up with someone, which means that that phone has to work, which means that they need a charger, which means that they need a place to plug in that phone and to charge it. And we need a way to get literally to that second vaccine. So it's all about housing in this population. And even if it's just temporary housing, can we give someone temporary housing to get that system set up? And in fact, there's a lot of literature out there on co-located care in a lot of different diseases. So can we match our vaccine distribution and our vaccine allocation in this population with bringing others to the table? Can we bring social workers, case managers, people who can help get someone stable housing, treatment for their comorbid mental illness? Can we get them connected to care as a result of the vaccine? Can the vaccine be a vector for care? I'll say it's going to take a lot of resources, but I see this as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to really re-envision how we deliver care to people. So Josh, it makes a lot of sense that care is not a one-off event it requires an integrated set of activities to deal with the health conditions. I guess I'm struck with the question of, if we were to have thousands of doses of vaccine within the next month available for this community, in our cities, in this city, Boston, how does one go about distributing that most effectively or is it too daunting a task given all of the needs that you've outlined? Oh, I don't think it's too daunting a task. I think that we have, throughout the last nine to 12 months, shown an amazing amount of ingenuity 
if anything positive has come from this entire mess, it is the fact that individuals have figured out ways to work toward a common goal. Everyone in the scientific community put their resources towards this. Nearly everyone in the manufacturing community put their resources towards this, whether it was for PPE or for vaccines or for transportation or supply chains or whatever it is. We have developed ingenious ways of coping with and dealing with this pandemic. I don't think that we're limited by our ingenuity here. I think that we're limited by, in some senses, our desire and our willingness to help. So let's take the methadone clinic as a really good example, Lindsay. Methadone clinics exist. People show up on a daily basis to get their methadone. This is a population of people who are not homogenous. Some people have very, very stable jobs and families and live in big fancy houses in the very wealthy parts of Boston. And some people are unsheltered and living in encampments. But by and large, you have people showing up every day. We can put teams of people at or adjacent to our methadone clinics to say, we're vaccinating here. We have actually a really good record keeping system. We know that you're going to the same methadone clinic on a daily basis. So there's not this question of how do we track somebody down and make sure that they've gotten their second dose or that they already got their first dose or, or they already got their second dose. They're there. We have to put the resources at the methadone clinic. We have hotels that are vastly underused right now that are sitting nearly vacant. This is a really good opportunity. And we've seen this in Boston. We've seen this in other places in the country. Even if it's for temporary housing, we could actually get people into hotel rooms. You wouldn't have to track them. And it wouldn't actually take a lot of resources to ensure that that population that was at the hotel was getting their two doses of vaccination. I really don't think it's necessarily a matter of ingenuity. It's a matter of resources. And I'll say, these aren't really creative ideas that I've come up with on a whim. You know, this is us just sitting here talking. It's not like I pre-planned all of these ideas. These are sort of straightforward ideas that we're coming up with as we're talking. Imagine if a group of people actually sat down to think about the resources needed to address vaccination in X community for 24 hours or, or 36 hours and really thought about the resources. I think that what feels daunting is that we think of vulnerable populations to some degree as homogenous. There's a lot of vulnerable people out there. And when you think about the vastness of the vulnerability, it becomes very overwhelming. But when we think about it in smaller pockets, it actually becomes very surmountable. Josh, I wanted to pick up on one thing that has come up in all the discussion, which is the idea of interconnectedness in planning. The country's an odd place where we make health policy in fragments at the very local level but the idea of an infectious disease really illustrates how that is a very vulnerable way of making policy. What happens in North Dakota affects what happens in California, and yet they have 
very different policies as to how they're going to control the disease. And that will extend to things like vaccination and which populations they choose to vaccinate and how they engage those populations. So I think there is a large problem here, which is how do we approach things, perhaps not a uniform way, but at least a way where standards are clear. And I think this is something that we've failed tremendously at during this epidemic. And I think the vaccine provides an opportunity for a reset. Can we go back and think through how we're going to deliver that vaccine in the context of what we want to do and in the context of how we can operationalize the values that we share? Yeah, I'm actually going to turn this question back over to both of you, because I've been thinking a lot recently is it the right approach to have the vaccine allocation scheme at the state level? Since we've seen that overwhelming interconnectedness of this and that what is happening in South Dakota is affecting California, is affecting Beijing, should we have a national approach to vaccine allocation as opposed to a state-based allocation? program. And I don't know the answer to that. I'm really curious what you both think about that. I think two things. One is pragmatically, I'm viewing the next two to three months. And what can we do in the next two to three months to turn the tide on SARS-CoV-2? And I would love to change legal systems and policies, but I'm not optimistic that those vehicles are that nimble. And so to some degree, in my view, we must figure out how to deploy the tools we have most effectively, most efficiently, given the current realities. The bigger question that both of you have raised is how do we think about as a community responding to a highly transmissible infectious disease? And I hope that we continue to reflect on what we've learned this past year, that the communicable infectious disease doesn't really care about our policies, our borders, our laws, our issues around rights and privileges. It is a global problem. And the community, in my view, is global, both from the identification to the diagnosis, to the treatment, to the deployment of resources to mitigate. And as long as we're a global community, which I think we are and will continue to be and should be, I think there needs to be a global strategy that of course will reflect on our country and then on our states and then our cities and our healthcare systems because each of those entities have their own ideas about how to be most responsive to their constituents. And we do need to figure out how to have a more organized response, thinking about it from the pathogen, not from my personal views of what I would like. Lindsay, thank you for bringing up the issue of global distribution of vaccination. There's not only an equity issue there, but of course, once again, infectious diseases don't respect boundaries. And so what happens in other countries matters to what happens here. So it's in our own national interest to make sure that happens. There's bad news, certainly, in the fact that there are a limited number of doses of vaccine available and that very few people are going to get vaccinated at small percentage of the population in any initial round of vaccination. There's a little bit of opportunity here too, though, because we have an opportunity to experiment and figure out 
in this relatively small population that will be vaccinated, what can we learn? I'm not talking about from a medical standpoint, though, of course, we'll get a better idea of safety and all from a larger number of people, but from the implementation standpoint. And I hope that we do take this opportunity to learn rather than just rush as fast as we can to do everything that we can. Because I think that those lessons could be applied to how we bring this to a larger scale. After all, the initial group of people who will be vaccinated are the easiest ones. They're people who are institutionalized and we can just walk into their building and walk from room to room and give it to them. There are healthcare workers who are already invested in care. So I think that with these easy populations, hopefully we can take lessons to take to the more difficult populations later. I think that you bring up a really important point in all of this is that our policies need to be fluid and need to evolve with the evolving evidence and with the changing conditions that we experience. You know, we've heard this statement a lot over the last nine to 12 months is that we are flying the airplane as we're building it. And I think that what we need to understand is that our allocation decisions right this minute may need to change in the next three weeks, four weeks, eight weeks, because there is a lot of uncertainty about the vaccines. We started this entire conversation saying we literally have no idea what this study really means. And it's possible that partway through this first round of vaccinations, we're gonna learn something new. And maybe it's about the immune response. Maybe it's about something else, practically speaking about the vaccine. So I think what we need to be able to do is understand that as the evidence evolves, so too does our strategy. You know, Eric, you mentioned healthcare workers were the easiest population, which to some degree is very true as a nursing home residents. I would argue that as we start to build up a little bit of vaccinated presence in our healthcare workforce, we need to think about the people that are keeping our healthcare settings open and functional more than just the healthcare worker, right? So we need ICU doctors really, really badly right now. I may not be so important to get vaccinated this minute, but we need ICU, we need nursing, we need emergency medical responders, but we also need environmental services who are not just essential workers, but they are essential to the functioning of the hospital. And whether they come first, second, third, right this minute is less important than how we adapt and how we're able to adapt our vaccination allocation programs going into the next six months. We're not very good at adapting as a healthcare industry. And I think that we have historically not been very good at communicating that changes are going to be necessary. This is an evolving process. Right this minute, we need healthcare workers to be vaccinated. We think that nursing home residents, based on a number of factors, should be vaccinated up front. It's possible that in six months or six weeks, that notion of healthcare workers first 
may not be what we need to be thinking about and we need to be able to adapt. And that's why I think that it's so important to have some of these strategies for getting at, getting to our vulnerable populations in place, because we do need to be able to move on a dime. Thank you, Josh, for joining us this week. And thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.